Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April 2nd, 2014, and this is episode 1326 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a great one for you. I've got a guy named Peter McCoy hanging by here for a moment until we bring him on. He is a radical mycologist. What the hell is a radical mycologist? He's a dude that grows mushrooms. And he's going to tell you how to grow mushrooms. He's going to tell you easy ways to grow mushrooms, a little more complex ways to grow more complex mushrooms. He's going to tell you a way today that you can start growing mushrooms like tomorrow morning for a dollar. Really good, awesome mushrooms. Uh, mushrooms I spent 10 bucks to buy spawn for. Apparently, it's not necessary. Anyway, more on that in a minute. Before we get to Peter, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle, you will find at Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, Sawtooth is awesome. Magpul magazines, Maxpedition bags, everything else in between. Check it out. SOE Tactical Gear, they've got it all uh, at Sawtac, including the awesome Manly Titanium Spork. Remember, MSB members, you get a discount off everything you buy at Sawtac. Check the uh, benefits section of the MSB before you uh, buy from them if you are a member. Next up today, ready-made resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made, ready to go, go, point, click, and buy on their website. And uh, they also have a way you can get free silver with case buys on uh, some of their long-term food storage products for MSB members. Ready-made resources and Sawtooth Tactical should be your go-to sources for everything tactical, practical, and everything else in between. Great sponsors that have been with us a very long time. On that note, though, uh, on MSB, I do have a discount vendor of the day to mention for you today. I don't know if I've ever mentioned them in this segment before, but they're awesome folks. Uh, they are part of the group put together by a good friend of the show named Devin Standard. Uh, the company is called Black Dragon Tactical. They have the Roni Carbine. They have awesome body armor. All kinds of cool stuff over at Black Dragon Tactical. And the discount they do for you guys is free shipping on all orders. And especially on small orders, uh, that's a really great discount. Check them out today, blackdragontactical.com. You'll find their discount code. The discount codes to many of our sponsors and all of our MSB members. The benefits section of the Member Support Brigade. If you're not a member yet, please consider joining. You'll help support the show at uh, 18.3 cents an episode. You get great discounts. You'll get free ebooks. You'll get content available nowhere else. And again, you are helping to support the show. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. First responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys do qualify for a discount uh, that thanks you for your service to uh, to our nation, either at home and or abroad. And, uh, again, that's prior service or active duty, either one. Email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. I'll send you a discount code to thank you for your service. Everyone else, you want to join, just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members and you can sign up there. Remember, I do take, uh, PayPal as my main online payment form. I also do take Bitcoin. I take silver. I take cash. I take checks. And if you want to barter something, I don't know, email me and, Put barter for Jack in the subject line, and we'll see if we can work something out. The email address for all communications with me is jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I promise you, if you want to talk to me, that jack at the survivalpodcast.com is the way to do it. It is better than Facebook. It's better than LinkedIn. It's better than forums. It's better than anything else. 
Email is the one thing I do every day. On that note, little public service announcement. Customer service at the Survival Podcast is about to go to probably the level you'd expect from anybody but me instead of the stellar, on-the-ball, five-minute turnaround time that you usually get from me. That's because I have a workshop running. Students will start showing up today in just a few hours. And uh, I will be teaching that workshop for three days. And uh, Sunday I'll be sleeping. So uh, you, you can expect longer than typical turnaround times for emails. Um, and I would refrain from sending me any proposals or detailed analysis of anything uh, for the next few days because I'm probably not going to read it. I'm just going to delete it because I'm going to be too tired to read it. Anyway, uh, with that wrapped up, let's get into our uh, main topic of today's show. It was actually hard for me to pick our history segment today because this is actually 1326 was the year the Ottoman Empire was founded. And uh, I thought that was an interesting story. And uh, it, Queen Isabella hangs her husband's lover and takes the, Eng the throne of England. Uh, that was kind of an intriguing thing. Um, but you can find out about those at the TSP Wiki at tspwiki.com. Uh, the one I picked is Occam's heresy won't cut it with the Pope. William of Occam is a Franciscan friar and a philosopher who called out the Pope on the church's excessive spending. Now William has been condemned for heresy by Pope John the 22nd. William B. will be confined, but eventually escape along with several of his followers. William of Occam is best known for Occam's razor, the principle that the simplest explanation for a particular phenomenon is usually the correct one. Oddly enough, William of Occam believed this, but never offered it as a former principle, a formal principle, and didn't originate it. But those who came after him certainly credited him with it, thus assuring his place in history for Occam's razor. Uh, Alex has his take on why the Pope was spending so much money. I don't think he's wrong, but what I actually want to talk about is Occam's Razor. Um, it's probably called Occam's Razor because the guy that was like the inventor of it was probably like Sushimaka, and Sushimaka's Razor just didn't sound cool. Occam's Razor sounds cool. I love the principle of Occam's Razor. It will keep you away from being deceived by hucksters, scammers, yellow journalists, mainstream media, and the government. Okay, and conspiracy theorists that are not rational people that are saying, hey, something's not right about the explanation here, because that is really Occam's razor, right? To, to look at something and go, that doesn't quite make sense. But the people that go through all these elaborate things, and, and everything is a plot against you, and they know that when you use Occam's razor, here's the big thing it does for you. It's not that it just usually leads to the correct answer. It eliminates 99% of bullshit. Now, I actually have always loved the principle of Occam's Razor. I didn't know the guy it was named after was a Franciscan friar who was imprisoned by a pope. Um, and I didn't know he wasn't really the guy that invented it. Now I do. So do you. And uh, now you know something about the past that you probably didn't before today. And once again, thank you to Alex Shrugged. And if you guys have not been to tspwiki.com, get on over there. We need contributors. I get emails from you all the time. I wish there was an article in the wiki about write it. But I don't know how to write the whole thing. Start it. Write a couple paragraphs about it. Create a stub. There's training on how to do it. Other people will jump on it and make it. It's a collaboration. You don't write it like you're writing a blog post. You put, put what you do know, what you do find interesting, just a couple definitions or something like that, and rock on. The wiki will be as strong as the people contributing to the wiki, like any community out there. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. 
And it's my good pleasure now to introduce Peter McCoy of RadicalMycology.com. What the heck is Radical Mycology? To explain all of that more, uh, I am happy to introduce our guest, Mr. Peter McCoy. Hey, Peter, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Hey, I've got you on today to talk about mushroom cultivation and uh, and what have you. And I, I'm really glad to have you on for that because we haven't really ever done an in-depth show on this. We've talked about it a little bit here and there. Uh, but before we get into that, can you just give us a little bit about your background? How do you get into you know growing mushrooms in the first place? I mean, usually like when you're nine years old, people aren't like, well, Peter, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you go, I want to be a mushroom grower. So so what kind of crooked path led you to, to producing uh, uh, mushrooms? You know, it, it kind of was a, I don't know if it was a crooked path, but it was definitely kind of zigzagged around and led me, led me to it in a, in a sense. Um, I've been interested in mushrooms in sort of cultivation since I was a teenager and just always thought it was kind of fascinating and interesting. And mostly I was interested in it because it was just kind of weird and nobody I knew knew anything about it. And I'm kind of interested in just that kind of eccentric stuff in general. And I tried to cultivate a bit when I was a teenager and mostly failed because the books that are out there that were out at the time were pretty inaccessible, pretty hard to navigate, especially as a teenager. And the internet didn't really exist. So I didn't have any resources on that end. And, and again, I didn't know anybody to, to talk to. So, so that was kind of my first introduction to seeing how difficult it can be to try to learn about mushrooms and mushroom cultivation. Um, and over the next like five, six years, I kind of tried a few times here and there. I would read books as they would come out and sort of kept up um, the hobby interest, but didn't really have the space or the, the energy to try to keep cultivating at the time. And, and again, I was kind of dejected because every time I would try, I would pretty much get contamination and fail. Um, but then when I started going to college when I was um, about 21, I ran into a couple of friends, made a couple of friends at the school I was going to in Olympia, Washington, who were also into mushrooms, and some of them actually had a bit of experience cultivating. And so we would work together and, and kind of experiment and try different stuff, and they taught me some things. And I learned a little bit more and was into it. I thought it was cool. Um, and then a, pretty soon after that, I learned about the the concept that mushrooms can not only be good for food and medicine, but that they can also um, clean up pollution and that they can break down a lot of toxic chemicals. And I'm also kind of a science nerd sometimes, and that got me really interested in that idea of kind of natural pollution cleanup and looked into that and saw that um, that whole kind of science is developing, but that there's not a lot of people really applying it in the real world. And it was really engaging to me and kind of learned that if I wanted to try to pursue that or try to do that to any degree experimental wise, I need to get better at cultivation. So that just kind of brought me back to getting better and better at cultivation and eventually, me and uh, a friend of mine that were really into this idea of using fungi for pollution cleanup uh, thought that we should share our, our bit of understanding with, with other people. And so we organized an event um, called the Radical Mycology Convergence, where we kind of talked about all the different ways that fungi can be good for making the world sort of a slightly better place and also preparing for survival and strategies for food and medicine, subsistence and things like this and, and pollution cleanup. And um, going into that event and organizing it, you know, I kind of realized that there was a pretty significant lack of, of teachers, of people that know cultivation well enough and are willing to, to teach it to the public or at least have the 
sort of the ability and skills to to teach in a coherent way. A lot of, I think a lot of cultivators that are out there um, either don't you know make that public presence or they they're growing illegal mushrooms so they don't want to be known publicly. And then a lot of just the hobbyists that grow them for food and medicine, you know, maybe it's not their their interest to teach. And so, sort of after that first event, I realized the need for more teachers um, of cultivation. And so I just continued to hone my skills, kind of from there. And um, and now I see it as one of the one of the things that I can offer to sort of the rest of um, the people I interact with. You know, everybody has different skills that they can offer, and all of them are really important for forced survival and just good sustainable living and things like that. And mushrooms is always one that I find most people don't know next to anything about. And so I'm, I'm happy I can offer it. And so I just continue to, to learn so that I can continue to provide that as a skill to everybody else. Awesome. Well, you used a term there that, that I've seen a lot in your notes uh, that I was reviewing for the show, radical mycology. Mm -hmm. What is radical mycology? So, yeah, it's a it's a question we get a lot because, you know, it kind of seems to be two disparate ideas. What what is how can this sort of natural science be sort of radical or sort of on the edge or something like that? And on a I like to think of it as like a literal and metaphorical way in some sense where in a literal sense um sort of what we do as radical mycology is just an outgrowth of traditional mycology. So traditional mycology is mostly focused on identification of fungi, um, understanding their ecology, how they sort of interact in nature, and then as far as human interaction, just how we can, if we can eat them and whether or not they're poisonous to us, and maybe a little bit about whether or not they're medicinal. And that's mostly where traditional mycology is sort of stopped, and then and then I guess cultivation is a part of the edibility thing. And in recent decade or so, the world of mycology has really been evolving rapidly to, to the point where now it seems pretty clear that mushrooms... Um, the skills of cultivation become much easier to the point where more and more people can and should be growing them, not only for food and medicine, but for, again, the pollution cleanup, for, um, you know, modifying their, their garden environment and making their plants healthier. And beyond all that, a lot of these skills can be applied sort of on a community scale to, to help not just the individual, but also, you know, people that are um, sharing resources and, you know, planning for a, a local economy type of scenario where, you know, we need greater resource management um, on a local setting. So with the radical mycology, we kind of try to tile that together and we try to think of what we teach as a less about mycology for the individual, but more about mycology for, for the, the community and also how, how it also protects the, can also be used to help the environment in the long run for, for not only human survival, but you know, the rest of the animals that live in the world. Um, so that's kind of like the, the philosophy sort of behind it. And then as an actual um, organization or project, the, the radical mycology group that I'm a part of is mostly just a volunteer group of friends who are really passionate about mycology and all the benefits that fungi provide like myself. And one of the ways that we try to share our information is through a free or rather donation-based event called the Radical Mycology Convergence that um, is open to pretty much anybody and everybody who's interested in learning how to cultivate mushrooms for for all these reasons and more, um, and how to work with them. And we really think that, I mean, mycology has historically been a very hard to access topic. It's been, um, you know, the books have always been really hard to read. There's not a lot of schools or classes you can take to learn about mycology on any institutional level. So it's always been a very word of mouth type of knowledge. Um, and we want to try to change that and make it very open source, very accessible 
and really kind of just shift how mycology has been and, and not in a way that we, we try to conflict with traditional mycology, just try to again be that outgrowth or kind of the next generation of mycologists sort of putting it into a, a modern context. Well, that's really awesome and a far more in-depth explanation than I, uh, than I expected. Um, you kind of talked about this already, but how, how, could you just clarify a little bit more about how you learned about the science of mycology and maybe a little bit about without the radical component, just what that is? Sure. Um, well, I guess, I, again, I learned about it initially just, you know, got went to the library, got whatever books were available on cultivation. And at the time, as a teenager, they were pretty limited and kind of dense. And sort of since then, my um, I did take one class in college that was pretty introductory. I kind of knew a lot of the stuff we covered. Um, most of it focused on, again, traditional concepts, largely focusing on identification and, and taxonomy, sort of how mushrooms are named. And that's pretty, you know, it's pretty rote, um, traditional biological knowledge, but it's good to know. But really most of the cultivation, the remediation stuff, um, studying about the medicinal properties um, of mushrooms and all these things, how to make them into paper and dyes and all this stuff. Um, mostly just been through a lot of book reading. There's a lot of good books scattered around the libraries and the internet and the world. And sometimes you have to order them from far away because they're hard to, to find. Um, and then a lot of the information is on the internet. And that's really one of the, the greatest things about, or one of the, the biggest benefits to the sort of evolution of mycology that I've been talking about has just been the internet because there's really good forums on the internet of people sharing their experiences, their in-depth knowledge, which again has really been coveted for so many decades for really the history of mycology. It's kind of um, a repeated theme that a lot of people run against. Sometimes people try to talk to cultivators and try to learn about, you know, how they do the tricks of the trade. And it's very much coveted information, um, you know, industrial industry secrets kind of thing. And nobody wants to tell you how to cultivate mushrooms well, but luckily on the internet, people are a lot friendlier and willing to share. And so I've definitely spent many, many days and hours and weeks just sifting through the internet and really reading a lot of people's perspective and insights and then experimenting myself and, you know, having a lot of failures and that's how you, you learn the hard way kind of thing. And through all that and trying the many, many different techniques out there, you know, I've kind of come to my own personal method of cultivation and every cultivator has their own preferences and, um, you know, I'm always learning new techniques and I always encourage more people to, to learn and to teach me because, you know, it's, a, it's an evolving science and there's definitely so much more to be discovered. Um, so yeah, it's just been a, it's been a give and take. And, and whenever I do events and I go to teach and I meet other cultivators, you know, I'm always learning new stuff. Um, it's always a constant discussion. So what's, what's a basic overview of, of how you cultivate a mushroom? If, I mean, if I want to tell you how to grow a tomato plant, it's really, really simple. When you think of mushrooms, I think there's a lot of apprehension and anxiety. I might grow a mushroom that'll kill me, which is probably not going to happen. But um, and and you know you sometimes you wait a long time before anything you know that you can see happens. So people are a little standoffish, I guess. So could you just give us an overview of basic cultivation methods? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I like to think of it. There's kind of well, there's a lot of different approaches to cultivation, like I said, so I kind of go into it with that um, as a caveat. But the basic concepts apply no matter how you, you go about it. Um, and there's really just two stages. I sort of think to the whole cultivation process, two big big stages, and then they each kind of break down further into smaller steps. Um, the first step is essentially growing what's called the mycelium. It's sort of the roots of the mushroom. 
And that can be done any number of ways um, on an industrial farm scale. Um, you know, really expensive equipment and very clean conditions are used to create large quantities of this stuff called mycelium, which is, um, I always like to think of it or tell people if you've ever rolled over a rotting log in the woods and you kind of see some white strands of something kind of growing off that rotting log, that's going to be the mycelium of some sort of mushroom decomposing that, that log. And so through cultivation, you're essentially just feeding this mycelium more and more organic foods, whether it's, um, you know, grains such as wheat berries or rye, or eventually you add um, something like wood-based substrates, um, substrate meaning a food for the mushroom. So that's either like sawdust or wood chips or some mushrooms can grow on compost. But essentially you just give them the food that they want depending on the species. And over time you grow more and more mycelium. And this is something you can watch happen. It, it, it is a slow process in some sense, but also quite rapid at the same time. Um, some mushrooms grow quite rapidly. And so that's sort of the, the base of the first step is you want to grow a lot of mycelium. Um, the details, you know, get kind of um, precise from there. For people that don't want to do that, I always say that you can start off by just buying a bag of mycelium from a local mushroom producer. It's called Spawn is what you'll be asking for. And those cost about 15 to $40. So however you go about it, whether you learn to grow your own mycelium, which is what I teach and what I think is a really crucial skill to to kind of long-term survival strategies and food sustainability strategies. But um, regardless, you grow out the mycelium through adding more and more foods and exponentially you increase your amount of mycelium. And then once you have a significant amount of mycelium, you can then either induce it to fruit um, or you can put it outdoors and cr essentially create an outdoor mushroom uh, bed or sort of like a mushroom patch. And essentially to fruit them indoors, all you need to do is create a high humidity environment. So either you could just spray this this plastic bag filled with mycelium, um, cut a couple holes, spray it with a little spray bottle every couple times a day, create a humid mist around it essentially, and it'll produce mushrooms. And if you want to do a lot of bags all at once, you can create sort of an indoor greenhouse with a humidifier inside of it and rig that up for a couple hundred bucks um, to be automated. And so you can have a pretty, you know, a little per a personal mushroom farm essentially going year round, um, growing off of agriculture and urban waste products. Um, and then if you want to apply it outdoors, um, you take that spawn that you either grow yourself or you buy from a local farmer. And using various different methods, you can mix that spawn, um, which is, again, essentially mycelium growing on typically on sawdust. So you get about five pounds of this stuff. Mix it up with wood chips. The mycelium grows from the sawdust onto the wood chips. And you can pretty much make that pile of wood chips and, and spawn mycelium um, into a little pile in your yard, essentially. And six to 12 months later, it'll pop out mushrooms. So it's a pretty slow process. But what's really great about it is it's very much a set and forget process. When you do your own cultivation um, at home, you kind of do one of these steps one at a time. Um, but they only have to happen about once every two weeks or so. And some of them, you, you'll do a step and then you don't need to do anything for two months. And so while you do need some space to allow these bags and things to grow out, it's very, if you have a good schedule, um, it really ultimately takes very little energy input to, and time input to ultimately get a fair amount of food and medicine out of it. Um, so that's the general, the general overview. I will say like a cheap alternative to that, one that I always recommend for people that want to start out with something really simple, you know, don't want to necessarily learn all these in-depth um, skills or buy a bunch of equipment, a really easy alternative is to simply get a five-gallon bucket, 
go to the local coffee roaster. Um, you can get used coffee grounds for free and then go to your local um, store, buy an oyster mushroom, and you can simply tear up that mushroom, bury it a couple inches deep into that coffee ground bucket, put the lid on the bucket loosely, and what essentially happens is that mushroom, which is itself made out of the same mycelium, the same essentially roots of the of the mushroom, it turns back into that mushroom, or into the mycelium, grows through coffee, and again, you know, a month or two later, that whole bucket will be filled with mycelium, and you could either start spraying it with a mister to get it to fruit inside the bucket, or you can break that up, apply it outdoors with some wood chips and create a bed that way. So so on that note, I've got one of these little oyster mushroom kits where you're sending like a pound of spawn, and you take a jar, and every day you throw your grinds in there and you sprinkle a little bit. I've just gotten the jar filled, and I've got it with the lid propped on it now to keep it humid but have airflow like the instruction said. Well, my thought is once that thing fruits a couple times, there's a ton of mycelium in there. So even though it's fruited, that I could then take that remains and spread that out in sawdust in the yard, and that would propagate more mushrooms. Is that inaccurate? Um, not No, not exactly. It's definitely worth trying, and that's what I do with all my spent – we call it spent spawn, and we call it spent because um, what's been seen time and time again is after the mycelium is fruited a few times – pretty much a lot of its energy, if you will, has gone into producing the mushrooms, and so the mycelium isn't as vigorous anymore. But it might very well still continue to grow, especially if you give it new, fresh food, and especially if you give it a different kind of food than what it's eating, that might kind of stir it back up and get it more excited. Um, so it'll always the mushrooms will always surprise you, and I, that's one of the reasons I always encourage experimentation and trying new things, because, I mean, I've surprised myself countless times doing stuff I did not think would work, and it works, you know, that kind of thing. What are some of the easiest mushrooms to grow specifically? I mean, we have a lot of people here. I just was talking to you before we got on air. Uh, we're doing a, a food forest installation. I have a lot of areas that will be shaded. I have a lot of areas that are already going to be shaded. I've got a big box full of spawn. The mushrooms I've selected to try to get going outside and try to get into a perennial status where once they're established, they're self-propagating to a degree. We're Kingstrophoria and Oyster. Um, are those good choices? Are there other good choices for that type of application? Yeah, those are those are definitely really good choices. Um, the Kingstrophoria, for people that aren't familiar, um, produces very large mushrooms, or they can be very large if you let them get big. Um, they're called the, the, the Kingstrophoria, the garden giant, for that reason. Um, they'll grow on all different kinds of wood. Some, some mushrooms are selective. They only grow on certain species of wood, but Kingstrophoria will grow on Douglas fir and all kinds of hardwoods they'll grow on, you know, kind of compost debris to some degree and pine needles. Pretty, pretty surprising how vigorous they are. And the mycelium is really easy to propagate. That's one that, you know, you could, you could get it to fruit and then keep expanding the mycelium. No problem. It's very, very vigorous. Um, definitely a beginner mushroom. And then the oyster also, um, you can do a, so the Kingster fairy is good as a chip bed, meaning mixed with wood chips and kind of being just on the ground there. Um, but also the oyster mushroom could be done that way, and it'll basically form like a rosette um, cluster on the ground. It'll also fruit out of logs. Um, other easy mushrooms are relatives of the of the oyster mushroom. So there's other um, there's other oysters than the traditional pearl oyster, which is I'm guessing what you have. There's also the the phoenix oyster, the king oyster. These are all ones you can fruit outdoors easily. Um, and other people prefer to do mushroom logs. And that's a little bit more of a time and energy, um, not so much a money expense and investment, but more of a time and energy investment up front. But that really provides for many, many years and helps 
really sustain um, long-term mushroom harvest that way. Um, other easy mushrooms that are beginners are uh, the turkey tail. Although it's not edible, it's more of a very st- it's a very strong medicinal, but it's not edible. Um, yeah, I would say those are some of the, the easiest beginner mushrooms. Good, I picked I picked well, I guess. And I mean, my hope was to get at least some level of multi- mushrooms going on site. That you know, as the words you used earlier, were set it and forget it. But long term. I mean, I grew up harvesting mushrooms from the woods. I never even thought about uh, cultivating them in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, compared to Texas. There was so, such an abundance of wild mushrooms, and if you knew what you were doing foraging, it almost seemed preposterous that anybody would take the effort um, to cultivate a mushroom. But that was before I discovered things like shiitakes um, <laughs> uh, and, and realized how, how hard certain mushrooms were to find. Uh, so... I've always thought, well, if they can produce and reproduce in nature on their own, we should be able to kind of set up the right environment and encourage that and get some level of a continuous, ongoing self-propagation going. Exactly, yeah. And, I mean, that's that's one of the biggest um, missing components, I think, to a lot of kind of permaculture gardens. And, you know, it's great that you're adding them to the food forest you guys are making. And, and it's and really, mycology is catching on more and more, and, and you're probably aware of that. And I think a lot of people are these days, which is really exciting for, for me and all my friends who have been into it for so many years. And everybody in our family and everybody we ever met would just give us a blank stare when we start talking about mushrooms, and they don't, they don't get it. But now more and more, I think that that's less, less the case. And people are integrating mushrooms into their food systems, into their perennial gardens and things like that, because, because they integrate so well. They can fill up you know, shady spots of the yard. They, they companion well with plants. They can help plants grow bigger and better and get higher yields. So there's lots of reasons to integrate them for sure. Well, it's all about the fungus with, with soil health. If you don't have uh, a mycorrhizal fungi in the soil uh, of, of many different varieties, there's so many processes and interplant relationships. And it, they're basically the communication network and the highway uh, of the soil systems. I believe that was Bill Mollison that said in a cubic yard of good forest soil, there's over 500 kilometers of, of hyphae. Yeah. And, and so it's an incredibly important part. And I think what we've seen in permaculture, most people like you create humid, wet, deep mulches, you get mushrooms. But, but what I haven't seen people doing is like going, okay, now, how do I take control of that and produce a desired mushroom? Exactly, yeah. And, and again, it just boils down to a lack of really thorough understanding because the information has been so inaccessible and there just haven't been enough teachers. And I don't, I don't, you know, I don't blame anybody or anything like that. It's just how, it, how it's been. And, and people have largely focused on animals and plants for their food sources and sort of ignored the fungi and, and all their roles that they play beyond just the immediate um, ones that we can pick. You know, again, the mycorrhizal fungi, not only do they they help channel nutrients, they also protect against disease and drought. They also reduce the need for fertilizer intake because they make fertilizers more accessible. Um, so we reduce our need for input. Um, they build structure in the soil. They create the whole soil ecology, like you're saying, that brings in the, the microbes and all the bugs and everything to make the plants live. And without the fungi, I mean, nothing would really survive. I mean, yeah, definitely important. So... Um You've kind of hit it on this, but there's a lot of nutritional and medicinal benefits of mushrooms. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, so I kind of think that mushrooms are, to some degree, at least in the West, 
Um, this definitely isn't the case in, in like Africa or, um, Asian cultures, but in the West, we sort of really overlook mushrooms as any type of healthy food beyond, you know, maybe button mushrooms, something like that. Some people are into shiitakes, which is great, but overall the, the, the mushrooms are kind of a superfood and, um, ones that are, like I said, pretty often overlooked. Um, by and large, they're pretty high in fiber, um, really high in protein. Some of them are complete protein in that they provide all the essential amino acids. Um, they're typically very high in vitamins like A, B, D, and K. So they <clears throat> they actually produce vitamin B and D, and they're the only non-animal source of vitamin D, which is great because most people are pretty vitamin D deficient. Um, they uptake minerals, trace minerals really well, and so they're a really great source of minerals. Um, some are really high in selenium as a good example, which is a really good known um, antioxidant and kind of cancer fighting mineral. Um, so they're a great food in that sense beyond just having like, you know, good food, uh, sorry, texture and flavor. Um, they store really well when they're dried. They can store for many years in a jar, no problem on the shelf. Um, so they're just a great food all around, whether you pick them and store them or again, if you grow them yourself and store them or use them. And then on the medicinal end, um, I think this is one of the most I mean, it's all really interesting to me, but this is one of the other things that got me really excited about mushrooms so many years ago is when I learned about how powerful they are as a natural medicine. Um, in Asia, and actually a lot of countries, like a lot of European countries, um, France, and as a good example, this, this isn't a question. And, and medicinal mushrooms and extracts, um, non-synthesized true extracts of the mushrooms are often prescribed in these industrial nations as um, – adjuncts to many different types of therapies. Uh, a lot of them revolve around cancer therapies. So many mushrooms, by and large, are either either or, or both of them, rather. Um, they're good at suppressing and fighting many different kinds of cancer, or they're good at uh, boosting your immune system, or again, doing both. Many are also antiviral. Um, so many of them have been shown to fight HIV and hepatitis, um, some of them reduce your cholesterol on par with uh, prescription statin drugs without any side effects. Um, and they, you can t kind of take these mushrooms and almost with no risk of, well, essentially no risk of overdose. I haven't ever heard of anybody really overdosing from these medicinal mushroom extracts. Of course, you can, anything's toxic in too high of a quantity, but, um, they're really powerful natural medicines. They're, they're easy to, to take. I mean, you could just add mushrooms. I know people that add mushrooms, you know, to their soup and, and pretty much try to consume some amount every day. And I've met numerous people over the years who have just miracle stories where they had cancer, they had some debilitating illness, and their doctor had no real good solution for them. And all they did was start, the only change they made was started increasing their intake of mushrooms, and it dramatically changed their health or even remissed or caused their uh, cancer to go into remission. Um, so it's definitely something I, I would encourage people to look into. And again, in, in, in Asia, this is a three, four, five thousand year old story where they've been using medicinal mushrooms for a long time, taking really good notes and tracking um, how to use these mushrooms and the effects on the body. But it's only in the, in the West where we're kind of slowly accepting this to some degree. But then even then, the, the way that the, um, you know, these the FDA is set up, it's kind of hard to get these things certified. So I think in the U.S., It'll probably, they'll probably always be considered supplements, um, despite the fact that they have such good reputation around the world. Which may be better because as soon as something becomes a drug, it becomes even more regulated. It's true. Yeah, it's true. So, um, 
you know, just the, the, the medicinal benefits alone, I think, are massive, along with nutritional. Are there, are there ways that that plays into dealing with using mushrooms in a survival situation, since this is the survival podcast? Right. Well, so, yeah, I mean, again, um, thinking of like a long-term survival strategy and sort of preparing for any future scenario, again, you know, growing, storing, drying mushrooms that are um, edible, medicinal. One of the things I didn't really point out is that a lot of the, well, pretty much every mushroom that they've tested has some medicinal property, if not a lot of these really powerful medicinal properties, especially the ones that are commonly cultivated for food. So whether or not you cultivate them for food or medicine, you're going to be getting both. Um, and then also, again, some of these are really good remediators, so cleaning up an environment or filtering your water to some degree. So that gets into, you know, having some sort of water and sovereignty to a degree. Um, so they're, they're good in that sense for preparation. Um, you know, as far as utilitarian uses, they can be used for making paper and dyes, although it's sort of, sort of a side project for some people. Um, more, more useful, I think, is the fact that microfungi like yeasts and little microbes um, can be used in methane digesters to produce fuel. So I'm, I'm guessing you've covered that in your podcast before, but that's a powerful way to produce fuel off-grid by collecting this natural gas that these microbes produce through digestion. Um, other other people and companies are looking into using fungi in their mycelium um, to make a really efficient insulation for houses. And some people are even looking into building whole buildings out of out of mycelium. So there's ideas of say growing a whole crop of of a very um, fiber rich plant and then growing the mycelium off of that so you get the the tensile strength of the fibers plus the mycelium and if you dehydrate that and figure out a way to sort of laminate it and preserve it from and protect it from um, decomposition you can have a pretty solid foundation and structure for a house that could last for years perhaps decades perhaps longer um, the mycelium is actually really uh, resistant to rotting as long as it's dried out Hmm. Um, uh, other stuff, um, fermenting fungi, so they help pervert, preserve food. So things like miso is a good way to make a really healthy food. Miso and other ferments are actually really powerful medicines themselves, which some people might find surprising. But again, if you look into the history and and um, you know stories like in post World War II Japan, a lot of villages drinking miso had significantly lower rates of cancer and radiation sickness, and they attributed it to their to their miso. So um, people could take that for what it's worth. Um, but they also, I mean, fungi just come into pr producing fermented drinks, which is another form of preservation, producing cheeses, um, which you can use to preserve your dairy products. Um, there's a, quite a few fermenting cheese ferment molds that are really easy to cultivate with very little equipment. All you need is basically a piece of moldy bread. And as much as that might sound gross, <laughs> that's actually one of the traditional ways that people would make some of these moldy cheeses was just taking moldy bread, mixing it with their milk, and then you get a, a sustained uh, dairy product. Um, so things like this, it's, it's all about understanding what the fungi do and not being afraid of them. Um, and so, and then, and again, lastly, I guess I've already sort of touched on this, is that fungi, again, integrate into the garden. So a lot of the listeners on your show probably have a big garden trying to grow their own food and maintain it. And again, through integrating the, the macro fungi, the ones that produce Mushrooms like the Kingstrophaeria, that pairs really well in the garden with, say, sweet corn, and it will help your grow corn grow bigger and better. Um, another mushroom called the Hypsozygus ulmarius, the elm oyster or the garden oyster, will help brassica plants um, across the board grow bigger, better, with higher yields. And so that right there, you're getting, you're sort of stacking your functions where you get a mushroom bed right on top of your plant bed, so you're not losing any, any square footage in your yard. 
but you're getting two yields plus you're increasing one of your yields. Um, and then on top of that, you know, integrating the mycorrhizal fungi, like we've talked about, um, all these ways really, I think, play into, you know, further survival and preparation strategies. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I am kind of blown away at all the things that mushrooms can do. Uh, I had no idea, for instance, that uh, there was really uh, a, a fiber yield in mushrooms, that there was something that could be done with the, 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 the fiber of a mushroom. I, I really had never heard that before. Yeah, there's a, there's a company called Ecovative that, that people can look into, and they sort of have taken advantage of the, the benefits of just the mycelium. So they, they started out as a company producing essentially an alternative to styrofoam, which was all it was was mycelium growing on agricultural waste. Um, and it put it into a mold and you form a little, you know, pocket or a corner for a desk and then you can ship a desk and the, this mycelium is uh, flame retardant. It's, uh, water resistant. It's, it's a great product in that sense. Um, but now they've expanded like I was getting into, um, into trying to think about, you know, insulation. So the mycelium, if you grow that into the wall cavity of your house, um, and you do it in, a, in the correct way, it'll fill every little nook and cranny. So there's no air gaps. It's very soundproof. It has a really high R value and it's filled with tiny little air pockets to, to be really strong insulation. And again, if you dry it out properly, it'll, it'll last for you know, untold number of years. This is a sort of a developing science, um, but definitely one that I think has huge potential and will probably be, you know, marketable and in, in not too many years. So what's the what's the real cost of getting started growing mushrooms? I guess it really depends on what you want to do and how much you want to produce. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of levels of scale with this. Um, that really cheap example I gave of getting a, a bucket of coffee grounds and going to the store and buying an oyster mushroom and tearing it up and throwing it in the bucket. That's like a buck. Yeah, it's like a buck. And I mean, <laughs> I've done that and it works. And then you have a ton of mycelium and then you can throw that out in your yard, mix it with your compost pile or with some wood chips. And, you know, you got to wait some time. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Chances are it probably will. And you grow 10 buckets and you'll have enough that something's going to grow, right? I mean. Exactly. Yeah. And if you get, if you get one bucket that is growing well, you can split that into 10 pieces and make 10 and expand it essentially ex- exponentially into 10 more buckets and then it's trade it with your friends and you're bartering and you know and you're saving money that way um so that's a really cheap example you know if you wanted to have any type of real semi setup um an actual you know regular production you want to be the mushroom cultivator in your town um you know it can start as as cheaply as a couple hundred bucks to get the basic equipment maybe even less than that especially if maybe a lot of listeners on your show already have a high quality pressure cooker and a lot of jars and things like that i mean that's some of the biggest investment is just the materials um, a lot of the specialty equipment is, you know, again, you can do it pretty cheaply and you can get away with, with minimal equipment or you can get fancier and, and more expensive. Um, but I'd say to start out, if you have nothing, you know, to really get anything going, could be as cheap as $50, although you'd be pressing it hard, but, you know, $200 is a safe investment. Um, people can go to radicalmycology.com and we have a free booklet on there plus a three-part YouTube video of me um, in my kitchen, walking through sort of the, the basic, uh, simplest and cheapest method of producing large quantities of mycelium, essentially producing large quantities of the spawn for next to nothing. Um, and you could sell this, and it's a high-quality product. It will produce well in your yard. And um, I'd recommend people look into that. And the cost of estimated with the method I go through there, starting with nothing, again, is around 
50 bucks if you have a pressure cooker and then you know you add about 100 150 for a good pressure cooker um so that's making the spawn and then you know if you want to install it outdoors you want to lay a bunch of beds then you need to get a bunch of wood chips and you know maybe you have access to a chipper maybe you have to rent one so there's cost there um a, a simpler thing again if people don't want to do all this kind of investment is to just produce a bunch of or create a bunch of mushroom logs and essentially what that would look like would be either buying what are called um, plugs. So they're little pieces of wood dowel that are covered with mycelium. Um, or you can buy a bag of the sawdust spawn that we've been talking about. And you buy a tool people can look up called a palm inoculator. Um, it's essentially a tool for getting the sawdust into a log. Um, and I encourage people to just look that up if they're curious. But essentially, you you get the mycelium in one form or another. You get a bunch of wood logs. Um, um, say alder is a good across-the-board type of wood for most species of mushrooms. And uh, essentially, you just drill some holes in it in a diamond pattern. You put in the piece of dowel or you use this tool to put in some of the sawdust mycelium, uh, cover those holes with wax so no competitors get in, and then let those logs sit out for, say, three months for some species up to a year and a half for some slower growing mushrooms. And then once the logs are ready, you submerge them in cold water for 24 hours, and about a week later, it'll pop out a ton of mushrooms. So one estimate is if you wanted to do 100 logs of this nature, it would cost roughly $45 um, to get all the materials, depending on how, how you can source the wood, um, about 12 hours of labor, and you can expect to get about 35 pounds of fresh mushrooms every time you force them to fruit, and you could force them to fruit roughly four to five times a year. And so, how long would a log like that continue to fruit before it's like it's done? It's because... I mean, the mushroom is using the fuel of the wood to, to grow. So there's a point where it's, it's done its job and decomposed that log. Right. And so that's just, that depends on the species of mushroom and the species of wood. So, you know, oyster mushrooms on alder, so fast-growing, intense mushroom on a really um, not a very dense wood, would last, you know, maybe three years, maybe more, whereas right. shiitake, a little bit less vigorous, slower-growing mushroom on oak logs, which is the preferred mushroom for shiitake, is a very dense wood, so those logs can produce for five, six, seven years, you know, perhaps longer if you're lucky. Um, it all depends on, you know, again, how much you're forcing it to fruit, how much is coming out of it, how well you maintain the logs. So there is a bit of art to making sure the logs stay healthy, they don't dry out and crack and things like that. When would you say it makes sense to start making your own spawn? I mean, I, I got the spawn that I uh, have. I have oyster in Kingster for it. I think I got six bags, five pounds each of spawn. So I think it was 120 bucks for that. That's that's a lot of spawn. Um, how big a production do you think it is? It just a good skill to have, period. Anyway, or is there like a, a cost analysis where it just makes more sense at this point to start doing your own spawn? Yeah, I mean, I guess it is. Just depends on the the individual person, how much space they have. Um, you know, one of the things about growing mushrooms is that you can grow them as a food and medicine source year round indoors. Um, on agriculture and urban waste products. So you can grow, you can get your whole mushroom yields off of old newspaper and coffee grounds and you're producing abundant, abundant amount of mushrooms doing that with very little energy and cost input. Um, and that's not a problem. I mean, it's, it's, once you understand the techniques, it's, that's really not a, an exaggeration. Again, it's just learning the skill and, and getting it. I think it is a, a key skill that people can carry throughout their life, whether or not they, you know, grow mushrooms year round because it is another hobby or thing you have to keep up with. But it, it definitely fills a lot of, um, 
niches and needs and helps cut costs. And again, you know, leading into just general, you know, it's a great tool for the toolbox, I guess. And mm-hmm. you know when you're going to call on it. But then if, you know, somebody has a large piece of property, a lot of land, and they have a lot of woods, woodlot, and, um, you know, they have, let's say they have a big woodlot on their property, well, that whole understory, you know, they might have some understory plants, or maybe they don't if it's been uh, cut a few times. Um, you have a lot of open space there to produce a large quantity of mushroom beds. I mean, you, whether or not you grow them yourself or you, you buy it, um, I would encourage people to make use of all their shady spots on their property to grow mushroom beds. But again, you know that if you the more mycelium you use, the higher your cost is. And so, if you're planning to do acres and acres of mushroom beds, which um, is definitely doable, you're going to save hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars by learning, taking a, a week or two, or watching the videos I have on YouTube for half an hour, and just seeing what it's going to take to produce large quantities of that. Um, I, I think it really is um, beneficial to the person that is interested in doing any amount of mushrooms to really at least get it familiar with the sense of the process. And, and even if they start out by buying one of these $30, $40 kits, um, if you learn how to take that kit and propagate it further, basically that's your seed. And you it's like saving your seeds for a garden. I might buy my first pack of seeds from Burpee, but if it's a mortgage lift or heirloom tomato, I can just take the seeds every year and propagate them. Exactly, exactly. And so you, you just you got to understand how the mushrooms grow, kind of the – the ins and outs of cultivation, there are limitations to it, you know, it's like anything. And so once you understand that, you can, you understand what you can get away with and how you can maximize, you know, your yield and maximize your profit or save as much money as possible. And yeah. Um, are there particular mushrooms that are difficult to cultivate? Uh, one of the things I've seen spawn for, and I've been hesitant to try to grow is mataki. Mm-hmm. Um, we called them ram's heads in Pennsylvania. I think a lot of people call it hen of the woods. This was like our go-to mushroom for foraging. Uh, we had places, it, they grew the same place every year. You'd cut them to the ground. We'd always find them adjacent to, and I see stuff online about growing them in dead wood, but I always found them in the wild growing in soil next to live oak trees, usually white oaks uh, or something similar, uh, sometimes near hickories. And this was not just a food crop for us and a medicinal crop for us. This was a cash crop for us. Um, because we had places that we knew well that we would forage frequently, um, we would always end up with way more than we could uh, uh, harvest or use, and we would sell them. And we never had problems selling uh, again ram's heads, as we call them, um, in, in in rural Pennsylvania. It was something that people really, really wanted. Um, but when I look at that, I just wonder how how hard are they to cultivate? Yeah, I, you kind of hit the nail on the head with which mushrooms are the most difficult. That is probably, well, you know, morels is another big one. That's a, that's a big cash crop that people really want to figure out how to get high morel yields, and that's always been a um, a tricky one. And same with truffle mushrooms. Truffles are um, mycorrhizal fungi that you have to dig at the base of trees, so they're hard to find, and they are really difficult to to propagate. Um, so there, So I guess... There's two answers to that. The mycorrhizal fungi in general, which includes chanterelles, boletes, matsutake, um, the truffles, like I said, these are all very difficult to cultivate because their symbiotic relationship with plants and bacteria is essentially very hard to reproduce in a laboratory. So we haven't figured out how to cultivate chanterelles. That's why they're wild harvested and very expensive. Um, but the ones that we can cultivate are the decomposers. So again, we just feed them food and they eat it and they decompose it. Um, like wood and things like that. And most of those more or less 
this is the other thing that's nice about mushroom cultivation is that once you understand how to grow one of these decomposer mushrooms, you can pretty much grow all of them because um, they more or less follow the same patterns and needs. There's slight variations depending on the species, just like, you know, blueberry wants slightly more acidic soil or something, but sure. more or less it's the same process. Probably one of the more difficult ones to get to fully fruit and to make it a commercial, um, you know, mushroom that looks like the thing you'd find in the woods is the maitake. And that's just because it has kind of three stages to its fruit body or the mushroom development. And at each stage, it needs slightly different um, like temperature and humidity controls. So it needs its own dedicated fruiting room compared to the other mushrooms. That's kind of just needs one setting more or less works for all of them. Yeah, and that was the other reason I didn't mess with them. I, I, now I understand why, but my concern always was climate. Um, the northeastern climate must be exactly what what those mushrooms need. Uh, and my climate here in, in north central Texas is not even close to the same climate, so I've never bothered with it. It is something I miss having, though. Um, and, and like I said, it was something we forged a lot, and it was something that was highly protected, the knowledge of where uh, you could find them. It was something handed down inside of families, and you never took a stranger or anybody not in the clique, so to speak, to your area where you would, would get them. And I'm sure in other places people do the same thing with morels and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, a person's mushroom foraging spots are kind of is really coveted. And, <laughs> and really on the mushroom industry things, I mean, if people want to think about other aspects of the world of mycology, wild harvesting is is a big industry and people make a ton of money. They make a living traveling the world, harvesting mushrooms and selling them to resellers and wholesalers. And, you know, when you get into a person's personal spots up in the mountains, I mean, people have been known to be shot and killed over. That is, that is the risk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were never that bad because every place that we, we harvested was basically public lands, but there were just places you knew that people would walk by and never find. Right. Um, I will so, how does this fit into other aspects of like food security? Well, I mean, again, um, with the, the things we've already touched on, I guess, with, with growing the fungi in the garden. So, um, again, I will encourage folks to look into growing the Kingsterferia mushroom with their, their corn is a really good example. And also the Hypsozygous ulmarius or the, the elm oyster is the common name that grows really well with all your brassicas. So, you know, cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, um, things like that. So those, those companion well. Recently, a friend of mine potentially made a new discovery where she compared our companioned, um, the Namiko mushroom, which is pretty commonly available to, for most farms, um, with her grape plants. And that helped her grape plants grow really well. So people can look into these companionings. This is actually one of the really, um, fascinating and, you know, developing ends of sort of radical mycology or just this new evolution of, of the world of mycology in general about all these different ways that macro fungi, the ones that produce the fruiting mushrooms we're familiar with companion with plants and help, help their yield. So this is one of those things I encourage people to experiment with. Again, my friend potentially made a whole new discovery just by accident with this Namika mushroom. So there's lots of room for, for that um, kind of experimentation. We've already talked about the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. Um, so people can look, into mycorrhizal fungi, there's different inoculums um, that you can buy from the garden store. People might be familiar with it. It's it's more and more popular to add mycorrhizal fungi, but there are wide ranges of quality in the products. And so, um, and then beyond that, you know, once you you can actually learn how to propagate um, better quality inoculum um, with mycorrhizal fungi, that's a more advanced, slightly more advanced skill, but definitely one worth investigating if 
I mean, it really helps your plants across the board. There's, there's pretty much no reason to not do mycorrhiza fungi other than the information hurdle. Um, and then again, the, the, uh, the preservation strategies that come with fermenting foods. And I don't know if you've done, if you've done long, longer shows on that as a whole concept, but that gets into ways of preserving food. A lot of preservation, like pickling and things is more based with bacteria. So not much fungi, but there are fungi that do ferment. Um, and not only help with, uh, preservation, but also just increasing the health of your food. So if you, you know, let's say you only have, um, you're, you're in a survival strategy and you only have a bunch of beans available to you. Well, if you inoculate that with a tempeh mold, um, it will make your beans more healthy, more vitamin rich. It'll, it'll create nutrients and it'll make it easier for you to digest. So it enhances even these, these dried foods that we store. Um, so yeah, things like that, I would say. Very cool. I mean, uh, we've talked about fermenting, but really, um, lactobacillus based fermenting. We've, I've never really looked at doing it with, with fungus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, um, on the radical mycology site, we have a, a page that just touches on this topic, but, um, I mean, again, I mean, you've probably talked to some degree about fermenting drinks or that is, and as much as they're a libation, they are also a method of preservation of, of, um, say juices and things like that. If you keep them low alcohol content, it'll help them from souring. And so that is, that is done by fungi and that can be done intentionally for people that are, that are beer producers, um, learning how to cult, you can cultivate the yeast that you buy at the store. You know, there's the a dollar dry packet of yeast. That's not very high quality or there's the seven, $10 vials of live liquid yeast. Well, you can learn to cultivate that yeast and maintain your own collection of high quality beer and, and wine yeast. I'm using these same methods of growing the other fungi because they, by and large, more or less follow the same principles. And so this gets into just whether or not it's survival food strategies, it's just general food production and, you know, sustainable living strategies. Excellent, man. Well, you've kind of mentioned your website a few times. Again, it's uh, RadicalMycology.com. But you have actually a lot of resources for people there, don't you? Yeah, so we have... um, we kind of what we're trying to do, and we're actually in the process of rebuilding the site. So hopefully, people will uh, be excited to check it out in a few months once we've gone through revision. But what we want to do is try to what we have right now is just um, pages dedicated to touching on a lot of these topics that we've talked about. And hopefully, in the future, we want to expand it to be more and more of some sort of clearinghouse or just a good reference to link to other resources. Of course, there's many other great websites on the internet that talk about these topics, but not in the sort of combined big picture way that we try to address mycology and all of its implications. Um, so people can go there to learn a little bit about cultivation, some species that are common. Um, you know, we haven't talked about in this, in this call or this interview, rather, um, the ways that fungi can clean up pollution, how that plays into sort of um, maybe not immediate survival strategies, but sort of long-term generational survival strategies of how to clean up water systems and polluted rivers and streams and dealing with, um, you know, ecological disasters and, and even just things like erosion. You know, fungi can help prevent erosion and maintain property if people are concerned with things like that. Um, so we touch on that a little bit on the website. And that's um, one of the things that, again, I initially got really interested in is how fungi can be used to sort of maintain um, ecology and how we can work with them as you know, as sort of their own cultivators. Um, but we do have a lot of videos. So we have videos from the last year's Radical Mycology Convergence. A lot of the workshops are on there um, for free on YouTube. So you can watch that, get a sense of what we sort of talk about at the Convergence, very approachable, um, understandable methods of working with mushrooms and other fungi. 
Um, again, I have that booklet and that video on how to cultivate using a really cheap, simple method that I think is very practical and, and high yielding. It just takes maybe a little bit of practice, but luckily I got the video to walk you through it. And, um, and then we just have sort of a scattering of other resources. I teach cultivation courses, so people are welcome to check that out and sign up for my email list if they want to get on that. Um, and then we do link to the website for the Radical Mycology Convergence. So that's RadicalMycologyConvergence.com, and people can go there to see um, plans for this year. It's going to be in Orangeville, Illinois, and it's going to be in early October, and we have a big workshop wish list, so people can go there and see all the different types of topics we are hoping to cover at this year's Convergence. And um, again, it's donation-based, and we're fr family-friendly, and uh, we encourage anybody that's interested in these types of skills um, to better themselves and their community to definitely come and take part. And this is like that's like a multi-day thing you've got going on, ninth through the thirteenth of October. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, we we only it's on a private land that's been generously donated, and people uh, it's kind of first come first served, where people uh, we basically camp out and uh, we provide food. And basically, it's just days packed with many, many workshops covering many different skills from all kinds of cultivation techniques, from low tech to high tech um, remediation. You know, pollution stuff is a big focus, but also getting into production of food and how to process medicinal mushrooms and just general, you know, and I like to get really into the philosophy and the, the cultural stuff. That's a big part of just who I am personally. And so we have discussions on just how fungi are important and how we should really transform our cultural perception from them being this sort of taboo, you know, semi-weird, um, fringy subject to be something that's really central and important to all our discussions about living sustainably, preparing for the future and things like that. And that it'll take a culture, an intentional cultural shift, I think, to, to manifest that. Very cool, man. Well, I appreciate all the work you're doing. I think this is something that is definitely underutilized by gardeners, permaculturists, uh, preppers, you name it. Um, it really is something that can be done, at least on some level, in everybody's home. Um, there, mushrooms are, let's just be honest, right? They're expensive. Right. You go to the, yeah. Anything other than cheap, low-end, white-button mushrooms are, are really expensive. I mean, comparative to top-choice cuts of beef, many mushrooms are more expensive by the pound. Um, they're incredibly good uh, tasting to, I think, the majority of people. There are a few people that just are turned off by mushrooms. What I kind of look at that is either you haven't figured out how to prepare them in a way that you like yet, or you haven't tried enough different kinds of mushrooms because they don't all taste the same. If they did, no one would pay, you know, 50 bucks for four ounces of, of dehydrated morals. Right. Um, so there's, there's that. Uh, and, and they do have an incredible opportunity, I think, from a medicinal standpoint. So I think it's something we should all be doing, at least on some level. And I think that there's probably tons of work to be done, right? And it's the nice thing is we always talk about, like, backyard orcharding, where people can start developing new varieties of things. I don't know if you're going to develop new varieties of mushrooms, but new techniques, uh, new uh, new opportunities, new ways to make it more uh, uh, usable to other people. And I, I also think for the person with even a small piece of land, there's a, a monetary opportunity as well. Yeah, I mean, all these reasons and more. I mean, again, um, you know, if you think about the money thing, if, if people wanted to incentivize this process, I mean, there's it's it's hard to make a, a living as a mushroom farmer kind of with the way the industry is currently set up and especially taking the, the approaches of high fuel and energy input that have been traditionally the practice. But one of the things we emphasize at the Radic Mycology website and at the Convergence is the many ways we can 
prepare and grow mushrooms using little or no energy and cost input, but creating high yields of mushrooms, which again, either serve us personally for food and medicine, or we can sell them or we can barter them. And, um, I mean, it's, it's just an unexplored economy that, that hasn't created, there's no demand for it yet, or the demand is so limited that it's enabled it to keep the, the prices high. But if we change that, and again, the techniques transformed to being more accessible and the knowledge is less coveted, um, more and more people can do it, and that'll make it more competitive and bring the cost down, but also provide, you know, these resources to everybody. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I know what you mean when you say it would be hard to make a living as a mushroom farmer, but I think that it's not a hard thing to make a little extra money with selling to friends and neighbors, because if there was a dude down the road selling shiitakes, I'd probably have some in the skillet tonight. Right. I mean, and, and that's why a lot of a lot of people with any amount of land grow shiitakes on logs, because, again, it's a little it's a bit of, you know, 12 hours of input up front to make 100 logs. But they'll last for years. The amount of energy and time it takes to get them to flush is very minimal. It's very passive. And it's a great, again, like you said, a, a side income or a trickle income all on top of everything else to at least grow shiitakes on logs or, you know, or other mushrooms, maybe locally sourced mushrooms. But shiitake are kind of the most popular Probably because they fetch such a good price in return for the initial investment. Yeah. Um, anyway, man, I appreciate you being with us today. One last question. If somebody is looking to buy Spawn, do you pretty much say just pick some and buy it? Or is there anybody that you would recommend as a like a go-to source? You know, I, I couldn't – I wouldn't – couldn't. Uh, yeah, I can't necessarily recommend one company over another. I would say just try to keep it local if there's a local grower in your area – you know, try to support them. And if they sell a local species that's adapted to your climate, you know, a lot of, that's one of the other great things about learning to cultivate is you can pick a wild mushroom that's really well adapted to your exact ecosystem. And then you can grow that and you know that it'll produce well. Whereas if you import some species from another part of the world, then it might not grow very well outdoors. Um, but yeah, so getting locally sourced mushrooms and varieties um, that are adapted is recommended. And so just talking to your grower, knowing what you're getting, um, seeing if it'll work in your environment and just reading the instructions you know, before and after is definitely a good first step. Excellent, man. Well, again, uh, the website is RadicalMycology.com. I'll have a link in the show notes. And it's been a very informative uh, episode, Peter, and, and thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jack. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I was excited to be here. All right, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierka today along with Peter McCoy, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Seen our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way